This is our last study in the book of 2 Timothy. We've been here for a few months, and we've seen overall this book is a call to action. We've titled it, Uphill to Glory. That, that we are on the way. God is at work toward glory in us and through us. That God is at work to glory, and yet it's often an uphill climb. It is often an uphill battle. I don't know, at some point in the past, I showed you the chain ladders uh, from the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa, and that was a really cool picture. I couldn't find the same picture, but I wanted to go back to those ladders and that steep climb again for this closing image. As we think about God's call to Timothy to stir up the gift that is in you, to, to not be afraid to be known as a Christian, to not be afraid to talk about Jesus, but to give himself to ministry even when others would oppose him, to go ahead and serve even when it was going to cost him. This call has been continuing. Even though others will not, Timothy, this is what you must do. God is at work, and this is what we must do. It's been a call to serve. It's been a call to get in the game. It's been a call to, like a good soldier, not be distracted. Like an athlete to train and to work hard in order to get the prize that is set before us, chapter 2. Like a hard-working farmer, a hard-working farmer who labors and, and plants the seed and, and, and pulls the weeds and sets the sprinklers, irrigates through the summer, and sometime along there he sees the first green shoots. And yet still there is nothing to eat. That will only come much later if everything goes right. If God does bless, and yet still the farmer works. And without the farmer's work, there would have been no harvest. This is hard work to set before us. It is often an uphill climb, and yet it's an uphill climb to glory. We saw last week that it is worth it. In fact, that that this is the time to hold nothing back. This is the time to leave it all on the field. That God is at work, he's at work in our midst, and there is no time like the present. Now is the hour. In season, out of season is not the issue. This is our season. This is our time. And after he reaches that pinnacle of the book, really in in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, then as often is the case with letters in the New Testament, it closes from there with some more personal words. In verses 9 through 22 contain that but they're not purposeless personal words what i wanted to do this morning is something they tell pastors not to do i've got a 10 point sermon lined out for this morning won't that be good hmm some of you are smiling others of you are looking a little nervous well i figure we get halfway through we'll move out to the grass we'll bring out some fried chicken or something we'll just finish from there okay I, I, what I want to do is, is maybe consider it this way. I, I want to model, perhaps a little bit, what I suggested a couple of weeks ago out of chapter 3 and verse 16. That the Scripture is given to you. This is God's Word. And, and as we open God's Word for ourselves, what we should expect to find there is God teaching us something we need to know about Him. We should expect at times to be confronted and rebuked. We should expect perhaps to be corrected, to be redirected away from something towards something better. We should at times look for instruction in how it is that I can walk. How will I walk with the Lord? Instruction in righteousness. 
What I want to do is to just work through 10 observations that I have, I have seen as I was reading through this chapter. So we're going to go quick. We're going to go up the ladder, rung by rung, 10 observations from this closing personal section of 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning of verse 9. That opening call, he says, do your best in the NIV. Some translations are more literal, make every effort. The first thing I want to point out is serving. If this is a call to serving, if this book is Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. If in the body of Christ, everybody is gifted by the Spirit for serving together in the body of Christ, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I love the point that that Kurt made earlier. He said, oh, addition? That's easy. No, it doesn't seem like it's easy. I, I, I can't fathom doing that kind of an addition on a house. That doesn't sound easy at all. Yet for him, this is something God had skilled him to do. God has shown him to do. He's developed the expertise to do. For him, he could, he could jump right into that. But serving will take effort. And that project took effort. Wherever it is that you're going to serve the Lord is going to take heart. There might be joy in the effort, but there will be effort just the same. He tells Timothy, don't come just, you know, any old time, you know. See if there's a cruise coming this way. No, he says, make every effort. There will be an intentional decision on your part to roll up your sleeves and get in the game. Serving is together. Number two, serving is together. Paul is saying, I'm here. Others have been here with me. Some of them have now gone here or there. Timothy, would you come? Would you grab Mark? Would you bring him along as well? In those opening chapters, the people that are mentioned that, that, that Paul wants around him at this time, at this final time for Paul, at this passing of the torch from Paul to Timothy, from others to us, it's a matter of serving together. One of the neat things that's going on in this, in this chapter, in the close of this chapter, there's a Fellowship of the Ring thing kind of going on. You know the story, the Fellowship of the Ring, the Lord of the Rings, the, uh, that trilogy where you have the hobbits? You've got these four hobbits, and these four hobbits are given a charge to carry. There is this ring, and they're going to carry this ring to where it needs to get. They're just hobbits. They don't know the spiritual powers that are amassed against them. They, they, are, they are small compared to the much greater spiritual battle that is going on. But among these four hobbits, Frodo and his friends, there is the fellowship of the ring. And there are times when a couple of them get separated and get drawn off this way. And then sooner or later they're reunited and, and the fellowship of the ring is, is pulled back together again. That's kind of what's going on here. We're, we're, we're hobbits. We don't have a lot of strength. We like to eat a lot. We're a little clumsy and awkward. However, God in his wisdom for some reason has chosen us. And yet, as will happen with hobbits, whether it's because we're distracted or whether it's because we just got separated in the midst of the conflict and there was other focuses as well, there are times when the Fellowship of the Ring gets, gets separated. And that's what's happening in verses 9 through about verse, verse 14 or so, you, or verse 12. You find this separation of the fellowship of the ring. And then in verse 19 to 21, you have this regathering. There are, the fellowship of the ring is being gathered again so that Paul will not be alone at Rome. We shouldn't be leaving anybody to serve alone. You will find in different places around Brush Prairie, worship together. 
growing together, serving together. We shouldn't have to be serving alone. We should be serving together. Kurt could not have pulled off that project all by himself. But the way God used him to pull a whole bunch of people and resources together made what seemed impossible all of a sudden seem like it was easy. Serving together, not solo. First of all, or, the, or, or rather thirdly, another observation I, I, I take from the story of Demas. Demas is mentioned here. And what I learned from Demas, who has departed, he's gone to Thessalonica. He has left Rome in the heat of the battle, and he's gone to Thessalonica because Demas has loved this present world. Now, it doesn't say that Demas was an evil person. It doesn't say that Demas left the place, or or he left the faith. In fact, Thessalonica was a place where there was a, a thriving church, a church that had been through its own persecutions, not from Rome, but from the Jewish community. They had weathered that. They'd gone through it. They knew what it was to suffer for their faith, and that's where Demas went. It doesn't say that he left the faith. It doesn't say that he was a creep. But it says that he no longer stood with Paul because he loved this present world more. We are warned. Don't love the world, neither the things of the world. Because the, 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 the things of this world are not the things of God. The things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they are not of the Lord, they're of this world, and they pass away. They do not last, they will not endure. 2 John chapter 2, verse 15 warns us, Beloved children of God, don't love the world nor the things of the world. Don't be distracted like Demas was. There's a testimony of those who in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of the great time of tribulation that's coming, they carried on a faithful witness. In the hardest of times, how did they do that? Well, here's, 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 here's the record that's given. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. They overcame him, the enemy, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and because they did not love their own lives even unto death. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and we don't love our own lives, even at the cost of our own lives that we will serve the Lord no matter what it costs you. There will be opposition. There will be difficulty. Love eternity more. You will have to deny yourself. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to walk with the Lord, if you say, I honestly want to serve the Lord with my life, you can expect it to cost you something. You cannot serve the Lord and walk the way of comfort. You cannot serve the Lord and walk the way of ease because if you're going to walk with Christ, he is the suffering service. He's the suffering servant. He's the one who, who gave his life as a ransom for many. He's the one who did not come to be served, but to serve. And if I'm going to walk with him, I'm going to have to walk with him there because that's where Christ walks. If I want to serve the Lord, if I want to join this call of Paul to Timothy, of God to us, if I want to be in the game, if I want to leave it all in the field, to leave it all in the field is going to cost me. Love eternity more. Number four, fourth observation, I pick it up from verse 10. Don't worry about others. I like this one. Okay, Demas, he points out, Demas has departed. He's gone to Thessalonica having loved this present world. Crescens 
has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. We don't know why. Now, Timothy could be saying, you know, I'm busy here in Ephesus. I got a lot of stuff going on. You know, Titus was there. What happened to Titus? Crescens was there. What happened to Crescens? Did Paul send them away on ministry? We don't know. Frankly, I don't know anything about Crescens. Titus, he sent places before. He sent Titus specifically to Crete on a mission. He sent Titus other places you read about in the book of Acts. So he may have sent Titus. We don't know. We don't know. But don't we easily worry about what others are doing instead? When the Lord's whispering something in, in our ear about what it is that we should do, easily we're distracted by, but Lord, what about them? Isn't there somebody else that could be doing that? Isn't there somebody else that should be doing that? And that's simply a red herring. That's simply a distractor. That's meant to draw the focus, take the spotlight away from me onto somebody else because I don't want to step forward. After the Lord's resurrection, after he restores Peter, after three times, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Three times, Peter is restored and commissioned. And, and, and the Lord warns him, it's going to cost you. Now you go where you want to go. You said you wanted to go fishing, and you went fishing. But Peter, the time's going to come when others are going to bind you and take you where you don't want to go. Peter, you're also going to be crucified, even as I was. That's what the Lord was telling him. And Peter says, oh, okay. And Peter's fairly, he, he, he's zealous. I'm ready to go there, Lord. But what does Peter ask Ness? Next, he says, well, Lord, what about, what about him? He points to John. And I love the Lord's response. He says, don't worry about John. Peter, don't worry about John. You worry about you. What is it that I have you to do? That's the point for you to worry about. Easily we worry about others. Maybe Crescens was off to Galatia instead of there with Paul. Maybe God wanted to use Timothy here instead of Crescens because Crescens had some secret sin in his life that others didn't know about. And that's why he couldn't be used. You know, I love that as a potential. You know why? Well, it gives us a chance to talk about Crescens, first of all. What we don't know, we can make up. But the other part of it, well, that, is that the reason you're not in? Is that the reason you have not committed that particular place of service that, that, that God would put on your heart? Is it because you've got something hidden, something on the inside that, that, that would disqualify you? Oh, well, now you can't stay on the pew. Now you can't stay in the back row. Now if I don't get out and serve me, somebody else is going to be talking about me. Why aren't... Maybe it's because there's... Some... No, no, no. Let's just get away from that completely. Don't worry about that. We're not, I love the fact that we're not told anything about Crescens. We're not told here anything about Titus. And I might be stretching that point, but the point I can make is don't worry about the others. No matter what Crescens and Titus and even, and even Demas are doing, there's a hole here in Rome. And Paul's alone. And Timothy make every effort to come. When you see ministry that needs doing, oftentimes what you notice ought to be, the reason you notice it is because you're sensitive to that because that's something you could fill. That's something that God has given you a sensitivity for. I love it. One of the neat things I get, I get as pastor is people notice all of these things. 
and they tell me. And I want to be like Jesus. I want to say, what do I have to do with you? you know, why are you telling me this? God's telling you. Are you like just his agent to pass it on to the pastor? When you see that thing that should be, that may be just the provoking of the Spirit for you that he has given you this. His call, like Paul to Timothy, God to you. Don't worry about somebody else. Jump in. He say, but pastor, you talked about secret sin. Maybe that is the problem with me. Maybe I'm disqualified. Maybe there's, there's been something in the past that I'm not the one that God is going to use. That brings me to number five. Your best is yet to come. There is restoration. The same gospel of grace that saves us and makes us fit for heaven, not on the basis of our own worthiness, but on the basis of they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, of Christ's death for us. That's the same blood of the Lamb that equips us for ministry. Notice here, Paul says, would you bring John Mark When you come, Timothy, would you bring John Mark with me? Now, at first glance, we'd say, what's the big deal about that? Well, John Mark was the guy that on the very first missionary journey, when this whole thing with Paul and Barnabas started, when the gospel was going out from Jerusalem and Antioch out to the rest of the Roman world, John Mark was on the first trip with him. They had a family connection. He was Barnabas' cousin. And so he joins them. But when the going got tough, John Mark got going. John Mark was out of there. John Mark bailed. In fact, it was, it was such a leaving the mission party in a lurch that when it came time for, for, for mission number two, this sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to restore John Mark then and bring him on again into this nev- another high-risk trip. And Paul said, no way. He abandoned us last time. He can't go again. He's disqualified himself. You and I will feel at times we abandoned the mission. We didn't leave it all in the field. We left the field. And God won't use us anymore. I will sit back. I will have to then watch others instead because God's not going to put me back on the game. But the same John Mark, Paul says here, bring, would you bring John Mark with you? He is useful. He will be helpful. He will be profitable to me for ministry. Past performance is not necessary. What's that great disclaimer you always see in the info commercials on TV about where they want you to invest your money? Past performance is not indicative of future results. That was true of Demas. His past faithfulness was not indicative of future results. Demas bailed. Oh, but John Mark had bailed before. But past performance is not indicative of future results. John Mark is just the one that Paul now needs. I don't know what's gone on before. I don't know who you felt you left down or who somebody else felt that you just couldn't measure up and they didn't want to use you anymore. Don't let that hinder you now from the service that God has called you to. Past performance is not not indicative of future results because it doesn't take into account God's prevailing grace. That his strength makes perfect even in the midst of our weakness. Another observation I get from verse 13. 
Turn your eyes back to verse 13 again. He says, when you come, Timothy, he's assuming Timothy's going to come. When you come and when you're here with me, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Now, the parchments probably referred to Old Testament scrolls. They, that was Paul's Bible, carried around on these Old Testament uh, uh, parchments, which were made from animal skins written on. We still have, have those kind of ancient parchments from the second century and maybe even some scraps from the first century that the scriptures were written on. Same kind of parchments that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written on, for instance. Paul says, when you come... Bring my cloak. It's getting chilly. It's cold here in this prison. And be sure and bring my Bible. Your ministry is going to probably have three dimensions to it. Your ministry is going to be personal when you come. There is a power of your presence in the life of somebody else. You need to be there personally yourself. Your ministry to others will have a personal dimension. Your ministry to others will have a practical dimension. Helping in just the stuff of life. Bring my cloak. Helping others in practical ways. The summer service does this, doesn't it? We want to come along in practical ways alongside people with have a need that we can help with. But not just because we get a charge out of helping people. Because we want our ministry to also have that third dimension. It must be personal, it must be practical, and it must be spiritual. Bring the parchments. Bring the Word of God. Because the Word of God will change everything. The Word of God is making a difference for Paul in the midst of the worst circumstance of his life. We'll see that a little bit more as we go forward. We need to be alongside people. There's somebody who's, who you have a personal connection to that they need you to be the one to not be afraid to talk about Jesus to them because you're the one that has that personal ministry. You're the one that has that connection to them. You often earn and make that connection in very practical ways. Helping them in the real stuff of life. And in the midst of that stuff of life, that's when opportunity for spiritual conversation can come. A couple of examples in my neighborhood. My, my, my neighbors next door to me still, still bring up now and again when I fix their pipe. I told you that story a couple of years ago. It's not anything recent. I haven't had any pipes breaking in the neighborhood lately. I'm watching because it really worked well. But, but they still bring that up. That really made an impression. Now, I had another neighbor over here. Where I'm, I'm, I'm in my mind now. I'm kind of playing tic-tac-toe neighbors, realizing, you know, who do you know among your neighbors? Do you know the people that live on each side of you? Do you know the people that live directly across and directly behind? I know for some of you out in the sticks, you know, that would be um, like in Idaho, so that might be difficult. But, but, but for, for some of us that live in more cramped quarters, do you know the people that are right, right behind you and right across the street from you? What about the diagonals? Once you fill in those direct squares right next to you, what about the diagonals? Think about a tic-tac-toe and try to get those neighbors that surround your home. Get to know them. Well, a neighbor diagonally to us on the tic-tac-toe, we got to know him a little bit when he called the sheriff on us. <laughs> well, you see, he had a legitimate reason. Somebody had been apparently coming across backyards and had landed in his, in, in his flower bed and had done some, apparently, some light vandalism in his backyard. And they had left this great footprint right in his flower bed. It was about a size 8. 
And because they apparently came from either my neighbor behind me's yard or my yard into his, he suspected because we had a teenager. Suspected it was probably, you know how teenagers are. It's probably, so the sheriff knocks on our door, opened the door. He says, well, do you have a, do you have a, a teenage boy? He, he looks at me first, kind of sizes me up. And then he, then he asks, do you have, a, do you have a, um, um, any, any children at home? Yeah, I have a teenage son. He's, he's in, in high school. And he said, well, well um, is, is he home? And, and uh, Daniel comes to the door as well. And, and he looks him over. He asked him a few questions. I don't, know, just, I don't remember all the questions he asked, but I didn't realize at the time but once, once the deputy saw his size 12 shoes, that sort of cleared things up. And he thanked us for our time and moved on. He never told us that. I didn't get that part until I went over to the neighbors afterwards. Hey, I heard, I didn't say, hey, you called the cops on us. I said, hey, you, you, I heard you had some trouble. Like there's somebody in the backyards. What's going on? He's, and so he brought me in the backyard and showed me. He says, yeah, it looks like a size. I mean, he measured the footprint and everything. It looks like about a size 8. I said, yeah, I've got a son at home, but he's a size 12. I was actually glad for that this morning. When the, but um, it gave me a chance now to talk with him and get to know him and identify with him a little bit. And haven't, haven't got a chance. I don't see this neighbor much, but, but personal And out of personal, how can we practically meet needs of people around us? And out of that practical, then we don't want to forget the parchments. We don't want to forget to take our ministry, our relationship to that spiritual level. Paul says, Timothy, especially the parchments, especially bring the book, bring the gospel. He needs it. Everybody needs it. In verses 14 to 18, we read about some of the difficulty that Paul has experienced, and he warns Timothy of. He says, Timothy, remember, I was stabbed in the back. You watch out for it. You watch out for Alexander. Alexander was probably in Troas. Alexander is mentioned earlier in 1 Timothy as somebody who had abandoned the faith, and Paul had stood up to him. And apparently there was a time later that Paul had apparently paid a price for it. And he's sending Timothy to Troas first to get his, his, his cloak and to get his Bible and then to bring those along with him to Rome. He might run into Alexander the coppersmith. Watch out for him. You will experience opposition. You will experience trouble. Like the story of Daniel, you will experience opposition when you stand for doing what's right. Not everybody will warmly receive you and embrace you for speaking up concerning the gospel. There is a great intolerance in today's tolerance. You can mention anything, but when you mention salvation by faith in Christ alone, all of a sudden that's met with intolerance. You will experience opposition. People will disappoint you. You will have trouble from others. Some will actually actively work against you. Why is that? What is God doing here if here I am doing what's right? Maybe I don't quite measure up to Daniel's level, but I'm doing what's right. I'm, I'm giving myself for, for, for good, and yet I get slapped down for it. I get this trouble. Couldn't God make it easy? He could. Why doesn't he? You know, one of the things I'm convinced of is One of the aspects of the troubles of this life is that this life is God's workshop for eternity. 
This is where God is working in us through the troubles, which include trouble we bring upon ourselves by giving ourselves and pouring ourselves out for the sake of others. But in the midst of that trouble, in the midst of the difficulties, God is doing his work right there, fitting us for eternity. Romans 8.18 says, The glories of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Sorry, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glories which will be revealed in us. That these momentary, 2 Corinthians says, these momentary afflictions, which are just for a moment in comparison, are producing in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The troubles themselves, the suffering themselves, the hardship itself, God is using to produce his glory in us. We would expect in a perfect world, if God were really in charge, that those who are faithfully serving him would be protected. We would have a bubble about us. We would have some force field that all the bad stuff would bounce off. And our life would just be bliss and happy. Why? Because we're serving the Lord who is the King of kings and Lord of lords and everything is subject to him. And yet he allows hurt in. And the purpose of that is he's working his glory. He's working in us. Think about it. In some of the most difficult times, you're pressed one of two ways. You are either pressed closer to the Lord or you're pressed further away. But as you are pressed closer to the Lord, it's there in that crucible that you know him. You get a fuller taste of the one who suffered everything for you. And there's no better place to do that. There's no better place than to get that taste of what it was that he who loved you and gave himself for you, if when you in love give yourself to somebody else, even when it's not well received. That gives you a clearer personal taste of what it was that the Lord did for you, and in that, you know him. That was the aim of Paul's life. He said, above everything else, that I might know him. Jesus defined eternal life this way that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the goal of our eternal life. And I'm convinced that in this life, as God's workshop for eternity, it is here, it is now, that God is growing our capacity to know and relate to him for all eternity. Now, God is huge above us. God is far greater than us. Imagine it as a father of Einsteinian intellect, who has a two-year-old. That's something in comparison to God and I, except I would be a very slow two-year-old. You get the gulf between us. And yet, to the extent that that two-year-old grows, the two-year-old knows his daddy. And as they have shared experience, the two-year-old knows something more of his daddy. The two-year-old never fully comprehends his daddy. But the more that he grows, the more that he can. This is our time. It's not because God has stuff we need to get done. It's not that we are merely God's minions carrying out all these tasks that have to happen before Jesus comes. 
No, it's in this serving like Jesus serves, there we know him. And now is the opportunity. Like I described that week, uh, like I described last week, that opportunity will quickly pass for us to serve the Lord by faith. It's here. It's now. And God is now working in us a capacity to know him that will be our capacity for all of eternity. That's one of the reasons we give ourselves to serving him now. And as we see him, as we know him, Number eight for me, observation out of this passage, I find in in verses 17 and 18. At Paul's first defense, he said, no one was with me. No one stood with me. Everybody forsook me, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me. And not only that, the Lord himself will deliver me from all evil, and he will bring me into his heavenly kingdom. What made the difference for Paul? The, 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 the tone at this point seems to be going down. You know, I really need you to come, you know. People have forsaken me. It's, it's, it's very difficult. I'm all alone. Nobody stood with me. They all forsake me. But the Lord stood with me. And the Lord strengthened me. And the Lord delivered me out of the lion's mouth. And not only that, but God will deliver me from all evil. And God will, will take me all the way to his heavenly kingdom. You see how the mood changes here? There's a shift happening here. And the difference is made as Paul describes the presence, the power, and the promise of Jesus. There is the turning point in this tone at this in these closing remarks of the letter. The presence of the Lord with him. He, experiencing God's power, God's enablement in the midst of his serving when I could rely on nobody else, God met me there. I would encourage you to stretch. I would encourage you to step out where you cannot finish. To go where you haven't gone before, where it's going to take God's grace to sustain you. Because there, there, you will know him. Looking unto Jesus rather than any other sense of our own security or our own ability. And along with that, how we look unto Jesus is to read the book. Seriously, as you read this, this closing passage, there are a lot of allusions to Old Testament promise to Old Testament scripture. There's that allusion to Daniel 6 where the Lord delivered me from the lion's mouth. There's an allusion to Daniel 3 in the fiery furnace where the Lord stood right with me. All those Old Testament promises that God would never forsake him. In fact, there's at least five times in these few verses, in these closing verses, where Paul says almost the exact wording out of Psalm 22. You know what's special about that? Many of Christ's experiences and his own words from the cross come from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 anticipates Christ's suffering for us. And Paul is using a lot of the same language. What does that suggest to me? That he's been meditating on that same psalm. You want to be strengthened in the midst of trouble? You will be strengthened in the midst of trouble as you too read the book. Paul says, Timothy, bring the papyrus. He's got it in his mind. He's got it in his heart. But he wants it again before him because he needs in the tough time to be refreshed again by something more he doesn't remember. Read the book. Lastly, 
Don't wait too late. He closes this section the way it opens. Make every effort to come. Timothy, make every effort to come quickly. And Timothy, make every effort to come before winter. Why? Well, he asked for his cloak. Winter's probably going to be cold in Rome, right? You know, there's more to it than that. And this I want to leave you with because this is important. He is telling Timothy, don't wait too late. Timothy, if you don't come now, you will not come at all. Around about September, and just when, you never knew. But sometime in September, the storms in the Mediterranean would increase. When you got past the fall feast, in late September, early October, the storms in the Mediterranean would, would be such that all of the shipping would shut down for the winter. And whatever harbor ships found themselves in, they would seek out a good harbor to winter in. And we saw this in Paul's first journey to Rome. When they were at a place called Fair Havens where they should have stayed but did not, and the captain set out again, no, 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 we're going to Rome. Let's go. And off they went. And it was too late. And they were caught up in a storm. And they were driven until they were finally shipwrecked. And there they would wait until much later. They wouldn't get to Rome that winter. Winter is coming. The opportunity is closing. He says, Timothy, I need you to come. And so, Timothy, don't wait till late. Come before winter. Don't wait till storms and other things are going to get in the way and the door will close. What God has set before you today, the urgent plea that he puts on your heart, there might be a personal connection, there might be just a clarity from God that this is something you should do. Don't wait till next year. Don't wait for a more opportune time. Don't wait till sometime you, you cannot avoid that there's an opening. When you have the sense that God is calling you into service, come before winter. Don't wait. Because the opportunity will close. I remember the time when God called us to Africa. I probably told you this story before. It didn't make any sense to my supervisor. I had almost 10 years in the Air Force. I was halfway to retirement. I could get out at that point with a thank you. I could go 10 more years. I'd have an Air Force retirement. He said, then use your retirement to, to serve the Lord in mission work. He was all for the mission stuff, but he said, you know, don't throw away your Air Force career. I said, well, this I know. The Lord's calling us now. I don't know that he will be calling us 10 years from now. A lot of you know the same thing out of your own experience. You knew very clearly that the Lord had put something upon you, and yet you said, wait. And then you ended up waiting a long, long time. And now, maybe like Mark, you're sensing that call again. You're sensing that call again. And I would say to you, like Paul says to Timothy, don't wait. Come before winter. Come before it's too late. If God's pressing on you that this is where you should serve him come now i'm going to invite the worship team to come we're going to we're, we're going to carry on with the extended worship that we had planned i i know i my remarks have gone a little long i'm going to ask for your indulgence this morning we want to give ourselves to the lord in worship we want to have our service driven out of our desire to worship him would you pray with me as the team comes father
We thank you, Lord, for clearly calling us, clearly inviting us to serve you. Lord, there are many ways that that happens right here in this church and its ministries. There are people that you place right around us and we in contact with. Father, as we have gone through your word this morning, we ask that as you have spoken to hearts, right now we ask, Father, that you would not allow those thoughts to pass. But, Father, this morning would be a morning also of commitment. That even through this time of worship now, if there are any that say, Lord, you are calling me. I will not wait. I will come now. Father, would you urge them even to come forward? And some of the others in the church, leaders in this church, they will come and they will meet them here. Pray with them. Invite them into into the next step. Help them know what that could be. Father, would you make this a morning where we don't wait any longer, but this a morning where we will walk with our Lord, serving you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.